Welcome to Our Hen House. This is Marianne Sullivan. And this is Jasmine Singer. And this week, Jasmine will be interviewing two amazing, amazing activists for animals. And they just happen to be mother and daughter. Zoe Rosenberg and her mother, veterinarian Dr. Shurston Rosenberg, are not only the driving forces behind Happy Hen Sanctuary, a California farm animal rescue, but are animal activists through and through, particularly with their work with Direct Action Everywhere. You were really inspired by this interview, weren't you? Totally. First of all, it was very fascinating to me interviewing mother and daughter because, as I mentioned to you afterwards, they could have been two separate interviews, but obviously there's a lot of overlap and they are mother-daughter, but they both do important work in their own right. And Zoe is a force of nature. I mean, like, just there's no other way of putting it. I've never met anyone like her before. And I was obviously on video with them because we record on video. And I have to tell you, watching Shearston's face sometimes when Zoe was talking about like her arrests and this and that, it was it was kind of priceless. But you know, when you have a kid like Zoe, they just have to be themselves. There's no there's no kind of discussing maybe softer advocacy efforts because this is it. And Zoe is like my new hero. Yeah, no, she sounds completely amazing. And I haven't listened yet. I'm really, really looking forward to listening to this interview. I'm so glad you got a chance to do it. Aside from doing that great interview, what else has been going on this week for you? Well, we had a busy weekend. We, you and I, went to our friends and and saw Hocus Pocus 2, which was a very important part of... It was the highlight. Yeah, it was the highlight for sure. And it was so funny because this isn't really a spoiler. This isn't a spoiler alert at all, actually, but it does tell you something that we were excited about that happened like maybe five minutes into the movie. Someone was making fun of these girls. They were They were in high school. Someone was making fun of these girls for being a witch. And one of the girls responds and she acts like she's doing a spell and putting a spell on you. And she's like, tempe, soy rizo. And she starts naming all these ridiculously sounding vegan foods. And the guy is like, stop, stop. You're putting a spell on me. And she's like, these are just the names of vegan foods, you idiot. It was the oddest vegan reference I've seen. (laughs) I have no idea why or what it meant. And there was nothing more in it. But it was was fun to hear. We were cheering. Yeah, totally fun. And then our friend who was sitting on the couch a few feet from us was like, okay, we could turn it off now. We're good. (laughs) It was very fun. Yeah, I was 14 when the original one came out. And it was, you know, I was such a giant Bette Midler fan when I was a kid that watching it was... So cool and so weird because it was 29 years ago that the original one came out. Anyway, this is not a podcast about Bette Midler, though I would totally host that. So we also got to present at Main Street Vegan Academy again. We've been doing that for years and it's been virtual since COVID started. So we talk about Animal Rights 101 and Animal Law 101. It was once again an incredible group of people. And if anyone is new to veganism or just kind of wants to learn about various aspects of being vegan from the environment to health to animals and fashion, you name it, sign up for Main Street Vegan Academy. It's amazing. 
I, you know, I never thought that Main Street Vegan Academy would work virtually because it was always such a social event and it was really great for people to get together and they got to come to New York and see the city. It was, I'm sure it was an exciting time for a lot of people who came, but it works so well virtually. I, I, I'm very, very impressed. Victoria always gets like a really interesting crowd of people. I find it very easy to connect with people virtually. Of course, you know, not that might be just me, but I think it really works. I, I was very excited to get to know some of those people, even though it was just for a short time. And, and I thought you did a great job. And it's always hard because you're trying to cram an enormous amount of really horrible information into a short amount of space, but not totally freak people out. And you do, you do a particularly good job with that because you do the factory farming portion. Thank you. You do the animal law portion and both of them are difficult subject matters, especially for people who might already know it. Like they're like, why am I here? Why am I listening to this? And, and so one of the ways we try and get it to sit a little bit more easily for people is after I talk about, you know, pigs, for example, and just the horror that they go through, I ask if anyone has ever connected with a pig and to tell us a personal story. And it always lights people up. It, it it lights up the person who's speaking. It lights up the people who are listening. And it's just so friggin' cute when people tell stories about animals. It's one of the reasons I love personal narrative and memoir. So I do think people get a lot out of it. And I always certainly do. Yeah, I've, I've always kind of sort of wanted to take it because aside from us, there are a lot of really, really great speakers. Really, it's a really great program. You actually had a, a lot of other attention this week. You had a, an, an interview published with Vegan for the Animals. Tell us about that. Yeah, thank you. It was it was fun. The table was turned. And the person who interviewed me is Jordi Casamajana, who wrote the book Ethical Vegan. And he does this series for Vegan FTA on activists. And he interviewed me. The name of the interview is Jasmine Singer, the podcaster who interviewed more than a thousand vegans, which I make very clear is both of us together. It's not just me that's interviewed a thousand vegans. So we will put that in the show notes and special thanks to Jordi and to Vegan FTA. We also got into things like why I don't use the word intersectional. We got into anti-racism within the animal advocacy movement and some other things as well. So Thank you so much for bringing it up, Marianne. That was nice. It's a great article. He did a great job, and so did you. Let's talk about what's going on with DXE. Well, when we're as we're recording this, the trial in Utah of Wayne Shung and and Paul uh, Picklesheimer in Utah is just starting, and so we really you might be way ahead of us by the time this is published and know more about what happens, but. But yeah, if, if you miss my animal law podcast interview with Wayne and attorney John Pronmeyer, who is, has been working with him on trial prep, you should catch that because it's really interesting. And there's been lots more on social media about this trial, and I'm sure there will be lots more to come. But it's it's enormous. And I think the people in Utah are really shocked at the level of activism that is going on around this. And they're not handling it well so far, trying to just pretend that people aren't there to support the defendants and trying to, to act like Smithfield is the victim of the crime, which I guess they are technically, but that's not how anybody thinks of them. And, you know, just trying to keep as much information from the jury as they, as they possibly can. Fascinating case. We will see how it comes out. Uh, it's it's going to be up to these jurors in, in Utah now. 
DXC is really is really doing a lot. There's another case pending, also incredibly important on a completely different aspect of animal rights or animal welfare, I guess you might say, and that's the case that's pending in the U.S. Supreme Court, which is not where any case should go these days because things are pretty crazy there. I've spoken of this case before, and you are probably pretty familiar with it. It's the case involving California's ban on extreme confinement crates and whether the sales ban, which is in existence in both California and Massachusetts, on bringing in pork and and other products, depending on on the situation, that are in violation of, of the way that California requires that animals be raised. In this particular case, they're talking about the pigs because the case is brought by the National Pork Producers Council. Whether that violates what's known as the Dormant Commerce Clause, which means that states can't regulate how other states do business. They can only regulate how they do business. And the idea is that no state should be allowed to govern how the animals were raised just because the food is being sold in their state, that those are two totally separate issues. It's crazy. And, you know, when this was first accepted by the Supreme Court, I was in shock because I thought that the the, the case had a pretty obvious answer that California is def- or Massachusetts are definitely allowed to control what's sold in their state. There's nothing in Dormant Commerce Clause jurisprudence that would prohibit that. But, you know, here we are. Uh, the National Pork Producers Council has gotten it, it accepted at the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is crazy. And so we will see what happens next. Terrific article on this case, if you're curious about learning about it in much more detail, in The Guardian by Marina Bolotnikova, who, of course, was the guest on, on last week's podcast. So check that out if you're interested. Yeah, totally fascinating stuff. And I know that you keep bringing up that interview with Marina it is indeed fantastic. And on the subject, going back to DXE, I think we should get to our interviews now with Zoe Rosenberg and her mother, Dr. Tristan Rosenberg. Yeah, absolutely. I can't wait to to get into this interview. Zoe Rosenberg is the founder and Dr. Shurston Rosenberg is the executive director of Happy Hen Sanctuary, a farm animal rescue on the central coast of California that has saved over a thousand lives. Additionally, Zoe is an organizer and the social media coordinator for Direct Action Everywhere. She has been awarded the Youth Activist of the Year Award from the National Animal Rights Conference and the Paul McCartney Veg Advocate Award. She has also delivered a popular TEDx talk about her ongoing activism and is currently a student at UC Berkeley, where she is leading a campaign calling on the school's dining halls to stop buying from factory farms. In addition to her work as the ED of Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary, Dr. Shirsten Rosenberg is a licensed veterinarian and has been an expert witness in a number of legislative, civil, and criminal cases involving animal welfare. They will both be joining Jasmine right after this. Animals need you and you need data. Did you know that 41% of people who experience animal advocacy say it influences them to eat fewer animal products? Or that 42% of people's vegan or vegetarian journeys are motivated by health? At Faunalytics, the mission is to empower animal advocates with research, analysis, strategies, and messages that maximize their effectiveness to reduce animal suffering. They conduct essential research, maintain the largest free online research library of studies on animals and advocacy, 
and directly support animal advocates like you in your work to save animals' lives. Sign up for Faunalytics weekly email alerts to stay in the know about the latest research that can support your animal advocacy. Visit faunalytics.org forward slash sign up. That's F-A-U-N-A-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot org forward slash sign up to get signed up today. Welcome to our hen house, Zoe and Shurston. Hi, so good to be here. Hey, thanks for having us. I'm really excited to talk to you, and I I admire both of your work so much. Zoe, let's start with you. You've been a passionate activist for years, but I want to start with your latest exploits at the Timberwolves game. Can you tell us why you and others chose to target these games and what happened? Let's just jump right in. So the owner of the Timberwolves basketball team is Glenn Taylor. He actually also owns a giant factory egg farm. And this factory egg farm, due to avian influenza, roasted um, millions of chickens alive. And um, this was because just, you know, there was just one or a few chickens who tested positive for avian flu. So, you know, they decided to brutally kill every single one of these millions of of innocent birds, um, which is just a response that we would never see for humans or for dogs even. But because they're chickens, you know, they're often considered disposable and and this kind of violence is, is considered acceptable. So uh, at a one of the big Timberwolves games, my friend Alicia actually um, superglued her hand to the basketball court at a Timberwolves game, and she had a, a shirt that said, Glenn Taylor roasts animals alive, and it just got so much media attention around this issue um, and around the investigation that had been done and kind of exposing the the violence that, that Glenn Taylor had done on his egg farm. Then at the a couple games later, I actually chained my neck to the basketball hoop at a Timberwolves uh, game in Memphis, Tennessee. And I was arrested and taken to the Memphis jail, but it was all worth it because, you know, we uh, were able to get the, you know, the word out about what what happened even more. Uh, you know, millions of people saw that action on social media. Uh, millions of people saw it on TV and in press coverage following the action. So it was just a really great way, I, I think, to get the the word out by disrupting these games. Amazing. You are so badass. Like, I feel like that's just the perfect word to describe you. So what happened after you were arrested? Yeah, so I was taken to a women's jail in Memphis. Um, well, actually, first I was I was taken kind of to the, the back of the stadium, taken to kind of like the security rooms. Very immediately, you know, the security and the, the police there were very upset. Just kind of throughout this whole incident, I would say the police just like continually violated my rights. 
which I'm used to in California. I've been arrested prior to this and all my other arrests have been in California also for doing activism. California police are jerks also and also violate your rights, but I don't feel like my rights have ever been violated like to the extent that they were in Tennessee. Can you elaborate a little bit on what you mean? Yeah, so I mean the first thing that that happened was the owner or Maybe he was the head of security. I'm not exactly sure who he was, but he was, you know, a, a individual with the stadium. He immediately started going through my personal belongings, you know, trying to get into my phone, um, pulling like my ID out of of my stuff and looking at my ID. And I said to a police officer, like, "Excuse me, this person is." going through my personal belongings. This person's not a police officer. They don't have a right to like be going through my belongings. And the police officer said, shut your mouth. So that was kind of like one of the very first things that happened when, when I was brought to the back of the stadium. I was taken to the security room. You know, the police were trying to find a terrorism charge to charge me with. They were like talking with the um, security at the stadium. They were like, looking, they were like literally Googling laws on their phones, on their cell phones. Oh my God. <laughs> like, oh my God. Trying to find a terrorism law that they could hit me with. And then they were finally like, uh, I don't think there's one because she didn't do anything violent. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. You're reminding me when my wife was... I think 19, she was arrested in a in Jesse Helms's office for doing a kissin. And um, it was like around 1990 then. And when she got taken to the jail, she has asthma. They took away her inhaler. And then, you know, it was it was 1990. So they were still smoking inside and they like would blow smoke into her face. You just this is what it's making me think of so much. Wow. Well, they actually have... tried to take my medical device away, too, uh, when oh. I was at the jail. Wow. <sighs> yeah, I have, a, I have a medical device that I cannot live without. Like, you know, even being without it for an hour would have really severe consequences. At the jail, they threatened to take it away. And I called my lawyer, uh, or I called folks from the, the jail phone, and I let them know that they were trying to take my medical device away just so that like, you know, if I was like literally dying that they could, hopefully someone could try to help from the outside. Yeah. So I, uh, my lawyer called the jail and said like, you cannot take away her medical device. If you do, we will sue. And then the uh, woman at the jail uh, at the front desk was pissed and she starts, she calls me over. She starts screaming at me, telling me that I'm a liar and that I called my lawyer to like lie to the, and I lied to my lawyer and told my lawyer that they were trying to take my medical device when they weren't and that they like weren't going to take my medical device and that I was banned from making any more phone calls. So they banned me from making more phone calls from the jail. And then they kept and then they tried to take my medical device again after banning me from making more phone calls. I refused to give it up because they wanted me to just like hand it over. And like they wanted me to like disconnect it. It's like it's like attached to my body. They wanted me to disconnect it from my body and hand it to them. And I said I wouldn't. So then they took me to the emergency room and they asked the emergency room doctor to t remove my medical device. 
And the emergency room doctor was like, no, under no circumstances are you going to remove her medical device? Like she could die without it. So I, I was really scared the emergency room doctor would just do it because, you know, when you never know, like when the police are like, you know, as a as a person of authority telling a doctor to do something, you don't know like if they're going to kind of defend you or not. So I was really relieved that she, you know, was willing to stand up to the police and, and tell totally. them. Totally. Wow. <laughs> Shirsten, how does it feel hearing all of this? And how did you feel about the protests? It's tough as a mom, because my perspective is maybe different than it would be if Zoe was not my daughter. <laughs> I worry about her so much um, with her medical issue. And um, I, it, it scares me. Um, when I heard that she had been arrested and gone to jail, all I could think about was whether they would take away her medical device, because this has happened before, where we've, we've been down this road before. I guess I would say I, I would not urge her to be doing these things because it's it's very scary for me. I just feel protective of my daughter, but I'm very proud of her. Oh, of course. I'm sure you're on this. You're here with us now. I, I w- I'm proud of her. She's not my daughter, but uh, I, I'm happy to like be a stand in parent for you if you ever need need one because if I had a kid I'd want them to be just like you (laughs) like that's but yes I would also be terrified I mean all of the things but okay let's go back to the beginning I believe Zoe that you founded Happy Hen Sanctuary when you were only 11 years old which was how many years ago yeah that would have been nine years ago okay wow so how how did all of that come about Yeah. So when I was, I think, nine years old, my family got chickens. And that kind of, I think, was the starting point of it all. We actually, we bought chicks from a feed store, which I will say you should never do. Um, We were very ignorant and we did not know that, you know, the chick hatching industry um, is so terrible. And obviously you should always adopt animals regardless of whether the the breeding industry itself is cruel. But yeah, so that was a mistake. But once we had the the chickens and we were raising these chicks, it it really shifted my perspectives on on chickens and also all animals. Because I think like most of us, you know, I I was kind of brought up to believe like, oh, dogs and cats um, and like rabbits are like, you know, kind of traditional pets and maybe more smart and than a bird. And I think, you know, in society, we're constantly given these ideas thrown at us that chickens are stupid, that maybe they don't even feel pain. You know, they're not like us. They're not like dogs or cats. And so getting to know chickens, I mean, I immediately pretty much was like, you know, they seem pretty smart to me. They seem pretty amazing to me. They, I I don't really see why their lives are any less valuable than mine or than the dogs and cats that I already love. Yeah. And yeah, I just kind of became obsessed with chickens. <laughs> I joined this online forum called backyardchickens.com, which is actually mostly like people who like kind of use chickens uh, and exploit them in some way, but it's also just a lot of people who like have and love chickens. 
And I was just like obsessed. Like I would be on there for hours, like talking with all of these chicken people all over the world about chickens. And yeah, it mm. kind of became like my whole life. And then one day I, I, while I was online, I stumbled upon the website for NSW Hen Rescue, um, which is a animal rescue in North South Wales, Australia. Um, and I saw a video on their website of them going inside of a factory egg farm where hens were being held in battery cages and opening up those cages and taking those hens out and then bringing them back to their rescue and giving them the care that they deserve. Um, and this was both the first time I'd seen someone rescue a chicken and also the first time I'd seen a video inside of a factory farm. Um, and it really shook me because, you know, I was, you know, imagining all of the chickens in those cages as the chickens that I had such a special connection with at home. Um, and I immediately knew that I wanted to do something to, to help chickens um, because I just couldn't imagine, um, you know, all the suffering in the world um, that they that chickens endure. I mean, chickens endure suffering on such a massive scale, like uh, even more than some other farmed animals. And I actually ended up emailing uh, the woman who runs NSW Hen Rescue. And at the time, she didn't know I was 11. She just thought, you know, it was probably an adult emailing her. And I asked her, how can I start a chicken rescue here in California? And she gave me a bunch of advice. And I asked my mom, can we start a chicken rescue? My mom said, maybe. And I was expecting a flat out no. So I was very excited um, that she didn't say no. And started building a website. Uh, I actually called it Happy Hen Chicken Rescue because at the time we just rescued chickens. Now we're Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary because we rescue all species of uh, farmed animals used in the food industry. And yeah, after seeing the website and, you know, kind of how uh, much this meant to me, my mom agreed we could rescue 12 hens from a local factory egg farm. She was very clear, just 12. <laughs> but I. After we rescued those 12, I think we both kind of realized we had to save more because, you know, I mean, it was a really powerful thing seeing these 12 hens um, who'd been, you know, so abused by this industry go from, from that to being at a sanctuary and, and living a beautiful life. And we just, you know, we knew we had to give more animals that chance. And now we've actually saved over a thousand animals from factory farms and slaughterhouses and other abusive situations. So that's amazing. There's so many. Uh, I was serious if you need a stand in, but I kind of feel like it would be like a stand in like ant or something, because I'm pretty sure that Shirsten is like mom of the century. Like, OK, so let's go back to that moment, Shirsten, because when I was 11, <laughs> I like constantly had ideas of things I wanted to do and they were they were like nutty. You know what I mean? And so you have this very precocious, I, I imagine, child who's like, I want to start a sanctuary. I want to rescue animals. Like, what was your reaction? What, what was in your head at that time? Honestly, I wasn't really that surprised. And the truth is, I always have wanted to start my own animal sanctuary anyway. I just was planning to do it after my kids grew up. And Zoe has always been extremely passionate about animals. I mean, 
all of her teachers and all of her friends all through school, you know, everybody knew how much she loved animals. She was known as the chicken lady in um, her middle school classes. I love that. And <laughs> yeah, so, it, and she, people started calling her Zoe Rooster and that was her nickname. And so I think what surprised me more than the fact that she wanted to start the sanctuary was just the fact that at the time she asked me about it, she had already created a whole entire website. <laughs> and she had, been, I think, working on nothing else for an entire month, but just her website. She was back at the computer. I think I thought she was still on Backyard Chickens, but she was working on the website. And I was blown away because I can't make a website, but here was my 11-year-old designing her own website. That is so, that is so cool. So sticking with you for a moment, Shurston, I know that you're currently the ED of the sanctuary and you are also, of course, a veterinarian. So if I'm correct, as a result, I believe Happy Hen is able to accept animals who other sanctuaries might not be able to accept because of their disabilities. Can you tell us about that? And also tell us a little bit about who is living there now? Yeah, it is a huge advantage to have a veterinarian here, um, especially with um, chickens that are having reproductive issues or possibly mobility issues, things like that. I feel very comfortable being able to help those animals. And for example, not so long ago, we, we accepted a hen named Hope who was unable to stand when she arrived here. And her peritoneal cavity was so filled with fluid that she couldn't walk or stand or do anything. And she was literally about to die. And the people who had her were not planning to take her to a veterinarian. And luckily, one of our supporters who was friends with, with that person convinced them to let Hope come to us. So I was able to treat Hope and um, drain the fluid out. And within a couple hours, she was standing and walking around. Wow. That's the kind of thing that probably would cost quite a bit of money, at, you know, if, if you took your hen to a veterinary clinic, which I recommend all people should do if they have sick hens, please. But it's great because we're able to do that at a very low cost. And then... We had a pig named Edna who recently passed away. She amazingly lived to be more than six years old, which when you think about all the things that she went through, and I'm not going to, you know, it's a very long story and I'm not going to get into all that here, but she had major issues throughout her life with bone infections and various you know, arthritis and her hop joints, different things that really immobilized her. And um, at the end, she was unable to use her back legs. Hmm. I mean, it was even difficult for me as a veterinarian having to manage everything. I don't do surgery here. We're not set up for that. So we found a veterinarian down in Southern California who was willing to surgically remove her infected bone. It was a major procedure. And so after she returned to the sanctuary, she had casts 
her bandages needed to be replaced every week. And I had to anesthetize her. I mean, she's a 600 pound pig. So it's not like she would just hold still or she had to be anesthetized every week to have those bandages changed. And that's something that would have been really hard to do if I wasn't a veterinarian. Yeah, I can imagine. And also just the fact that you're around these farm animals who were who were basically bred so that they would die as babies and you are seeing them live out either their full lives or many more years than they were like, quote unquote, intended to live. It must be amazing to be around these these like physical issues that it's probably like new territory for every sanctuary owner to have to navigate through. And I imagine for a a veterinarian, especially, it would be like, okay, what's today going to (laughs) bring? What's that like for you? Even though I went into this knowing that these animals come with, you know, genetic issues and, you know, like you said, they, they're not bred to live long-term. I've been truly shocked even as a veterinarian at the level of poor health that they suffer from just uh, purely based upon their genetics. And it's professionally challenging to keep them in with the care and, and quality of life that I believe they should have because they do suffer from so many issues, um, particularly foot issues in, in turkeys is one of, one of the big ones that we deal with. Yeah, just a lot of, um, you know, arthritis and various issues that are, are very challenging. And it's so frustrating to think that humans would actually breed animals that ultimately end up having to pay the price of ill health, you know, in the long term. It's obviously morally wrong. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Okay. Well, going back to Zoe for a moment, Zoe, you certainly didn't stop once you founded the sanctuary. I was looking at some of the most important moments that you have had in your in your childhood, in your teenage years. Can you tell us about some of them, some of the most important moments fighting for animals since you were a child? There's been a lot of, of moments that I've, I feel have been important and some have been kind of, you know, ones that have drawn more attention and others probably less attention, but still feel like very pivotal moments, you know, just as simple as getting chickens and having that connection that kind of drove everything to be what it is. I think, you know, it it wasn't necessarily like the most widely viewed event, but I think like a very pivotal moment for me was participating in the first broad daylight open rescue in U.S. history in San Francisco several years ago and carrying a chicken away from a slaughterhouse. Uh, The chicken, her name was Laro, and it was just a really powerful moment, I think, because taking her into my arms and and carrying her away and, and feeling like I was like the only thing that stood between her and slaughter. I think, you know, that kind of feeling that we all have the power, that I always have the power, that everyone listening to this has the power to be that body 
between an animal being saved or being slaughtered. We all have the power to like completely change the course of an animal's life. You know, we can determine whether or not they're going to die or not. And yeah, that's just like a really powerful thing. Also a very scary thing. Yeah, so I just, I feel like that was a, a very pivotal uh, moment for me and just kind of hardened my resolve even more in wanting to, to keep continuing on with this fight. Some other big moments that maybe have more been widely viewed is I uh, gave a TED Talk. I actually, and the TED Talk was largely actually about another big thing I did, which was the first time I got arrested, actually, um, was I ran onto a uh, baseball field, the Dodgers game in L.A. Uh, when I was 14. And uh, that was to protest Farmer John and animal cruelty that had ex been exposed at, at Farmer John's pork supplier. So at that time, the Dodger dogs that were being served in Dodger Stadium used pork from Farmer John. So I ran onto the, the baseball field with a banner. And then, yeah, about a year after that, I, I guess I was uh, 15, I gave a TED Talk about that in the sanctuary, which is a really great opportunity to spread the message to even more people. Yeah, I think those are two moments, but there's definitely been a lot. <laughs> Yeah, I have. So I have also, I was like crossing them off as you were saying that. I have that you were the first keynote address at age 12 for National Animal Rights Day in San Francisco. You mentioned at 14, you and a few other activists ran onto the field during a Dodger game in LA in protest of the stadium's Dodger dogs and the cruel treatment of the animals killed for hot dogs, and that you were arrested then. That you you mentioned your TED Talk, which we'll, we will link to that in the show notes for this episode so that was in San Luis Obispo when you were 15, at 16, arrested on live TV at the 2019 NCAA football championship to draw attention to animal abuse in factory farming. And Levi Stadium, as I understand it, was specifically targeted due to its ties to the poultry producer, as you're talking about. And then at 16... Tell me about this. I have on my notes that you learned a major university in California had a working slaughterhouse on campus and students in certain animal related majors were required to take a class. Tell me in your own words, what was the class and what happened? Cal Poly University, which is a university in, in my hometown and also just a, a major university in, in California, has a literal slaughterhouse on campus where they slaughter animals and then sell their flesh. And I was absolutely horrified when I learned this. And then I was even more horrified when I learned that if you basically do pretty much any animal-related major, if you're you know, on track to become a veterinarian, um, if you're majoring in animal science, you are required to take what they call a meat science class, which is a class at the slaughterhouse where you have to go through the process of slaughtering multiple animals. So there's I actually know many students at Cal Poly who were going to become veterinarians who completely changed course and shifted their entire major because they couldn't, they didn't want to take that class. They didn't want to hurt an animal. So it's just a very disturbing thing. And 
I found out from a student there um, what their schedule was of when they were going to be slaughtering these animals for these classes. Found out that they would be slaughtering a pig one afternoon. So I went to the slaughterhouse and they had the pig, we, we called her Dana. They had her held in, I guess it was a holding pen, but it was like connected to the chute that they used to drive the animals into the slaughterhouse. So she was like being held right there, like right, like ready to be pushed into the slaughterhouse. And I climbed into the chute slash holding pen. I sat with her, you know, I, I begged them to let me save her. We had our room for her at, at the sanctuary. We offered to provide her a forever home instead of having her be, be killed for this class. And they, you know, refused to spare her life. And I was ultimately escorted out by the police and banned from Cal Poly for a week. <laughs> banned for a week? <laughs> Sorry, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, banned for a week. <laughs> but just a little bit after, like a few days after my ban was lifted, they were slaughtering a cow at the, the slaughterhouse. You know, I really had a lot of regret about not fighting harder to save Dana. And so I wanted to go all out this time and do everything I could to save this cow. And so I chained myself to the gate of the chute before they could bring the cow in to the slaughterhouse. So I, I, you know, basically put my body in the way and blocked the process. And um, yeah, I was chained there for, for over an hour. We called the, the cow justice. They drove justice away from the slaughterhouse and they wouldn't tell anyone where the cow had been taken to. Um, we assume that uh, it, she was eventually slaughtered. Probably not that day as the class was canceled that day, but they probably rescheduled the class. Uh, eventually they, they cut the chain and uh, I was I was arrested. Yeah, we kind of started a campaign kind of framed around like, where is justice, um, which kind of had the double meaning of literally where is the cow because we want to save her and also where is justice in the other meaning and also just, you know, campaigning to shut the slaughterhouse down. And unfortunately, the slaughterhouse is is still there. But I think probably the most important thing that came out of that whole event was that the slaughterhouse was kind of like a dirty secret of the universities. And unless you were in the department, in like the major departments where you had to take that class, like you didn't, even as a student, you didn't know that the slaughterhouse was on campus. So most of the students in like the social sciences departments or whatever had no idea that this slaughterhouse was on campus. Basically, in the course of a few hours, uh, me chaining myself there, it went from hardly anyone on the campus knowing about this to pretty much every single person on the campus knowing about it. That was probably the most powerful thing because we really just made something that they didn't want anyone to know about very, very known. That's incredible. And I know that the as a result of that, there were also direct conversations between the university president and the student government and other members of the community 
So you not only lifted the veil on this, but you also instigated a lot of dialogue about it. So, I mean, I think that's incredible. And I I also have uh, here that in, in 2021, you spoke with California Governor Gavin Newsom about your concerns regarding factory farming. T- tell me about that. It was basically me just kind of forcing myself in, up to Gavin Newsom and, and saying, we're going to talk about this. So he was actually doing a like kind of volunteer appreciation event, kind of like as like a showy thing for the press, you know, where he was just going and like shaking the hands of like the volunteers who'd been helping to call voters and, and stuff. And we'd found out that this event was happening from someone who was like signed up for the volunteer alerts from Gavin Newsom's campaign. And Gavin Newsom, we've had a campaign within uh, Direct Action Everywhere for a while asking both the legislature in the state of California and the governor to take action to place a moratorium on the construction and expansion of factory farms and slaughterhouses. Um, obviously, we want to see factory farms and slaughterhouses also shut down. But at the very least, we should not be building more or expanding existing ones when we know what a terrible impact these institutions are having on basically everything and on everyone. So we've you know, been campaigning and calling on Gavin Newsom to, to really take factory farming seriously for a while and to take animal agriculture seriously. And he'd basically been ignoring us for a very long time, largely ignoring this issue. So I went to this event and, you know, I kind of just tried to blend in with the volunteers. Um, And I just went up to him and I just shook his hand and I said, animal agriculture is destroying our environment. Kind of laid out the situation. Some of it he probably already knew, of course, but just uh, saying, you know, what are you going to do about it? You know, he gave a very politician answer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. (laughs) Kind of just saying, well, you know, I've got to deal with other things like COVID and and whatever. And uh, (laughs) Yeah, wow. That is so cool, though, that you were able to do that. Yeah, but I'm glad he heard the message and, and knows that it's something people care about. Definitely. So you mentioned DXC. What is the role of DXC in your activism? Yeah, well, I became an organizer with Direct Action Everywhere when I was 12. So I've, you know, been organizing protests with them since then and participating in protests with them. And, you know, Direct Action Everywhere has been a huge support in, you know, making a lot of the awesome actions I've been able to do happen. I couldn't do most of them without DXC, you know. They've provided legal support and resources and training. And yeah, it's just been really great help to to making these things happen. And uh, I'm also the social media coordinator for Direct Action Everywhere. And I've also led a couple undercover investigations through Direct Action Everywhere as well. So yeah, it's definitely been been a huge part of, of my work. Well, they're do. I mean, DXE does incredible work. Shirsten, speaking of DXE, I know you are also involved with DXE's legal work. Can you tell us about that? Right. So over the years, I've been given undercover footage from various investigations. And I have written about what I've seen in that footage, um, which has been really great for me to just be able to be very factual and truthful about what I'm seeing, which is horrific, right? But to be able to have the opportunity to get that out there, because 
it's something that the public doesn't usually get to see. And I'm able to, um, as a veterinarian, let them know what's happening on these farms and, you know, how egg laying hens are being treated or turkeys or pigs or how cruel um, ventilation shut down is um, to the pigs and the chickens that are being killed through this horrible means. And yeah, so so I've, I've written many reports uh, based on undercover footage, but I've also had the opportunity to testify as an expert witness on behalf of direct action everywhere as a, a veterinarian. The first case I testified in was a restitution case having to do with a, um, a very large egg laying farm. Wow. Wow. That's incredible that you're able to step in in that way. I have a question for you, Shirsten, that you're definitely not going to be able to answer, <laughs> but the, like I have interviewed, uh, two other veterinarians out of like a thousand people that I've interviewed who who embrace animal rights. And I, so how do you account for the fact that there are so few veterinarians who embrace animal rights? Yeah, that really is a great question. I think it really comes, well, it, it I guess it's actually a very complicated answer. And like you said, I really don't have the, the answer, but I think it kind of, it starts through our educational process because part of the kind of weed out process to become a veterinarian is kind of demonstrating that you're tough and you can handle doing surgery on animals and you can handle different things that happen and and you're not squeamish and kind of a machismo thing. Past that, it, it's an economic issue too because when it comes down to it, veterinarians are tasked with serving humans and the animals that quote belong to humans rather than animals, which I, um, which is one reason why I would really like to see a change to the veterinary oath that we take when we graduate, where it's more animal centered. Because I mean, I view my commitment to animals as more like a human physician's commitment to their patients. But in truth, veterinarians are paid by the humans who, quote, own the animals. And so if the humans are exploiting the animals for financial gain and the veterinarians are being paid by those humans, it doesn't really benefit the veterinarians to speak out against, you know, especially these large industries like, you know, the pork industry or the egg industry, or it's really frowned on, to be honest. Um, I mean, any veterinarian that basically that talks about what's going on on these farms is really going to face backlash from fellow veterinarians and the industry, too. That's very well said. You were able to answer it a lot better than I think anyone else has. Everyone else is like, I don't know, because of cognitive dissonance, <laughs> which, you know, is the reason why all cruelty happens. Or maybe I guess psychopaths are the exception to that. And probably a lot of humans are psychopaths, probably a lot more than <laughs> we realize. Why am I taking this interview there? OK, before I go back to Zoe, Shirsten, when you were in vet school, you were already an activist. Can you tell us about that? And did that make you stand out from the crowd? Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I definitely did not think of myself as an activist when I was in veterinary school. In fact, 
Um, I wasn't even a vegetarian when I started veterinary school, but in fact, I wasn't even really aware of the fact that there were animal rights activists. You know, I was so ignorant when I went into it. Honestly, I was very naive. I just loved animals and I, I wanted to work with animals. <laughs> kind of a typical <laughs> thing, right? Um, and, but I had been primed by an experience I had in a um, animal physiology class that was required for veterinary school. And I won't get into the things that I did to these animals as part of this class, um, which I will never um, forgive myself for. Um, and that experience really, um, in large part, shaped how I feel about animal cruelty. And, and also just it made me realize that when authority figures tell you to do something, and it's condoned, it, it's amazing what people can do. I mean, this was a, a course that I was required to take to go to veterinary school. And we killed quite a few animals in that class. And it was horrific. I mean, I still have nightmares about it. So anyway, then when I started veterinary school, I was still eating meat, but I, I was kind of, I was ready and open to new ideas. We had a lecture given by Ned, Dr. Ned Bukamichi. He's a veterinary ophthalmologist and an animal rights activist who had actually been fired from UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine because of his um, outspoken views in advocating for animals, but had sued and gotten his job back. And as part of the conditions, he was allowed to speak to the freshman class um, once each year. And so he talked a lot about, I remember him saying, you know, uh, an animal is not an object. They're not equivalent to a chair. And I mean, that sounds very simplistic, but it was it was a great talk and it it opened my eyes and it was it was really great to hear what he had to say. And then a good friend of mine uh, let me a videotape. She was vegetarian and in vet school, and after, it was called the animals. And Literally within the first five minutes of watching that video, I became vegetarian. That was 1994, so veganism wasn't really a thing, but vegetarianism was. It progressed from there. I mean, honestly, I don't think I could get through veterinary school now with the with um, the way I'm able to allow myself to to feel compassion for animals now. I don't know if I could get through veterinary school. It would be very difficult. So the one thing I did do, just to kind of wind this up here, in veterinary school that was activism, I guess, you know, in retrospect, was that a friend of mine had saved her, um, the dog that she spayed um, in surgery class and had found this dog a home. And the dog ended up escaping from the new home, getting back to the shelter, and then showed up for the terminal surgery class to be killed in a terminal surgery class. And in that class, I wasn't killing a dog. I, I refused to do that. And a friend of mine and I convinced the administration to let us use cadaver dogs that had been euthanized at the teaching hospital for medical reasons. So they weren't killed for us to be able to do to learn surgery they they 
died because they legitimately were sick. The clients had very compassionately and generously allowed us to use their bodies for um, our education to, you know, save a dog from being killed in a terminal surgery. And so anyway, I was just so appalled when my friend's dog, who she had adopted out, walked into our surgery lab. And I begged all of the other students in the class to help spare her life. I offered them to use the cadaver that I had ready for the class and I would just take an F and we could save Betsy, the dog. None of the students would help. Nobody would help. She ended up being killed. And I have regrets about that too, because I, I, without getting too much into it, there are things that if it happened today, I would have taken much stronger action. I think we all feel like that. I mean, I I totally understand what you're saying about I can't believe I did X, Y, Z. But I I genuinely feel that everyone listening to this right now would say that sentence about something that they've done. And I, I can also understand why you would say I don't think I could go through vet school again. But I mean, God, I'm so glad you did, because now not only are you making a living amends to all of the animals who were part of your past at that time, but you made a Zoe. <laughs> like, like, I mean, uh, and and that that activist spirit, I honestly believe like we we of course, we're autonomous w- when we're when when we are old enough to talk and what we we figure out what we want and how we want to go about the world. But that activist spirit is something that to a large extent, I think, is passed down. It's inherited. We get our fight from generations before us that either were fighting themselves or had to develop some kind of survival mechanism that resulted in our generation fighting. So your story is one that ultimately leads to, you know, Zoe being this incredible activist and you too. I mean, what you, what you're doing too, Shirsten is, is really amazing. Even at the beginning of this, before we were recording, you were like, it's, you know, I'm fine. Just sort of taking a back seat to Zoe. And I understand why Zoe's extraordinary, but like the background work, like the work you were explaining that you're doing at DXE, the sanctuary work, all of that is, is, is worth celebrating. So if you're not going to like, sing your own praises. We'll sing them for you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I know it's hard to like, be a, I would have my head in a paper bag now, but take it. You know what I mean? All right. So Zoe, um, are you, a, you're a student at UC Berkeley now. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> and so I'd love to know what you're studying and if you're involved in activist work there. Yeah. So I'm trying to create my own major. You have to apply for this program and I have not applied officially yet. So it's still to be seen, but this is my plan. Um, uh, yeah. So UC Berkeley has a really cool program called the interdisciplinary studies field where you basically can design your own um, coursework and major. And yeah, so I, I'm hoping to um, design something uh kind of combining social change strategy and kind of social change theory with uh, animal justice and and build a major there. Uh, as, as far as my activism at Cal, yeah, I've been doing a, a lot of work here at UC Berkeley. I 
started my, my first day at Cal by releasing an investigation I conducted at Seaboard Foods, factory pig, one of Seaboard Foods factory pig farms. At the time, Seaboard Foods was the pork supplier for the UC Berkeley dining hall system, Cal Dining. And uh, we released this investigation and myself and two other activists and students at Cal, uh, we chained ourselves to Sather Gate, which is, you know, if you look up pictures of UC Berkeley, Sather Gate's certainly going to come up. It's like basically this big grand entrance when you uh, get on campus. And so we chained ourselves and super glued our hands there. That was, you know, the same morning we released our investigation. But within a few hours, UC Berkeley made an announcement that they were dropping Seaboard Foods. And so we, we unchained ourselves and went home. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, you're like, this isn't how I expected today to end. But like, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. Holy crap. So they, yeah. And at the first year, uh, first really first year and a half, UC Berkeley was working with us and um, really taking our feedback about the suppliers they were working with. Obviously, you know, I don't support any of their animal agriculture suppliers like believe there's a humane way to, to hurt an animal or to kill an animal. But we were, you know, at least trying to point out like the, the absolute worst ones and, and just trying to make change where we where we could. And so well initially we we asked when they dropped seaboard, we asked them not to replace it with another pork supplier. We asked them to just not serve pork because whatever supplier they were going to replace them with would surely also be terrible, which it is. They replaced Seaboard with Hormel, which is another awful company. <sighs> and yeah, the, when we, it, it was really disturbing because when we asked them not to serve pork, their response was to say that they couldn't do that because the Chinese students would be upset. And in the moment, I wish I had responded to that better. But, yeah. um, you know, looking back, I feel like you know, it was actually a very racist thing for, for them to say, to like blame this like marginalized community for having to hurt animals. Like mm -hmm. that's pretty not cool. And yeah, they just kind of continuously kind of bring up this whole idea that like, you know, we have to, we have to hurt animals because of this marginalized group. And, mm -hmm. and everyone I've talked to like from those marginalized groups has been completely outraged that, that they're saying that because they feel like they're like putting it on them, you know, they're, they're blaming this marginalized group for this. Um, yeah, just very disturbing. But that aside, we got them to, we've gotten them to drop several other suppliers in addition to, to Seaboard. We got them to drop Butterball Turkey based on the fact that Butterball is co-owned by Seaboard. And then, you know, we basically, after this whole first incident, with chaining ourselves to the gate and everything, we got them to agree to provide us a full list of all of the suppliers they were working with, which they had previously kept secret. And we basically just sent every investigation that's ever been done at any of the suppliers, every single supplier that they buy from. And we got them to drop several more. Um, they dropped Harris Ranch. That one took a little bit of convincing, um, but they we got them to drop Harris Ranch. They dropped Diesel Turkey. Um, yeah, they've dropped, they've dropped a few. Um, and then where we've kind of come up to a barrier is 
Tyson Foods has been the real big fight here. So Tyson, uh, as a lot of people might know, is the largest meat supplier in the world. Absolutely massive company. And they're the number one water polluter in agribusiness. They're ranked five in terms of all companies for most uh, workers injured on the job. And that's, uh, if, it, if it was actually like, broken down based on how many workers actually work at each of these companies, Tyson would definitely be number one because compared to the other four companies, Tyson has significantly fewer workers. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of worker injuries, um, a lot of human rights violations, and obviously a lot of terrible animal cruelty. Some of the worst animal cruelty investigations you can find on the internet are Tyson facilities. So, you know, we sent all of this to UC Berkeley and they, you know, were very unreceptive about dropping Tyson, um, where they'd been a lot more receptive with some of the other companies. And I think it's likely that, you know, Tyson being the largest meat producer in the world sells cheap meat and Cal Dining doesn't want to buy something more expensive um, and they don't want to take the political risk of not serving dead animals at all. <laughs> Due to their lack of response, uh, myself and uh, two other students bike locked our necks to the uh, largest dining hall on campus, demanding that they take immediate action and drop Tyson Foods, um, as well as Hormel. We definitely want to see them drop Hormel as well. And just, you know, ultimately, make a commitment to transition away from factory farming. And 99% of animal agriculture is factory farming. So not buying from factory farms would essentially mean that they could not serve animal products in the dining halls. Wow. And yeah, so we sat there bike locked to the dining hall for 12 hours. UC Berkeley does not like to arrest students. By like several hours in, having your neck bike locked or something is like not comfortable. And so we were like at the point where we like honestly wanted to like beg them to arrest us because we were so miserable. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, we sat there for 12 hours. Finally, they actually sent someone down from the chancellor's department. So the chancellor is at UC Berkeley is, is Carol Christ, and she's kind of like the president of, of the whole university. And they sent someone from her office down and we got a written agreement that if we unbike locked ourselves she would meet with us and she very rarely meets with students so we were like okay we'll take this opportunity so we left um, and we met with her the executive director of cal dining was also in this meeting in this meeting the chancellor was i would say pretty rude and kind of very much did not seem to care at all about the issues uh, we were uh, raising. The most disturbing thing that happened in this meeting was the executive director of Cal Dining, Christopher Henning, told me, he told us that Tyson Foods does not use factory farms, that they use small family farms. And I was trying to be super nice and like professional in this meeting, but I said to him, I was like, that is a blatant lie. <laughs> like Tyson supplies to McDonald's and like, you're not going to tell me McDonald's uses small family farms. Um, so then that summer, I went and I investigated a factory farm owned by Tyson Foods and sent my footage to him. And I said, hey, it's definitely not a family farm. It's a factory farm. 
They have oh not emailed God. me back since then. I have heard nothing from them. <laughs> but we've been campaigning really heavily. We've gotten hundreds of um, letters from students. Um, we've gotten hundreds of petition signatures. We've gotten, you know, students to protest and march and take action and voice how, you know, they're discussed with UC Berkeley's use of Tyson and their use of factory farms and animal agriculture in general. And I actually met with the sustainability director of the entire UC system over the summer. And she told me that she knows from, from folks that Cal Dining is very much feeling the pressure and is, you know, considering kind of shifting course because of our protests. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Not holding my breath, but we're going to keep campaigning and, and see where everything goes. <laughs> wow. That's incredible. Oh, okay. Well, I, I have one more question for you, Zoe, though. I do hope that you'll both, I know you've been with me for a while, but I do hope you'll stay on a little bit longer for our bonus content. But I, I have one more question for you. I, I, I know that, the other side of doing the extraordinary work you do is that you also get haters and people who might say that your activism is, you know, too flamboyant or might put people off. I don't, I am not one of those people. I am like team Zoe, Zoe for president, Zoe for empress. I'll be your campaign manager. How do you deal with the hate? And what would you say to respond to that kind of a criticism? I get a lot of hate, obviously, from, you know, people who might support animal rights and disagree with the tactics. And then also from people who just don't agree with animal rights in the first place and just hate animal rights activists in general. The people who just kind of hate animal rights and that kind of realm of things, that doesn't bother me at all because, you know, I'm kind of like, yeah, you're not going to support me. So whatever you say doesn't really matter to me. It can be disempowering when people who you kind of expect to be on your side kind of expect to be your ally in this fight for animals you know kind of hate on you and because they disagree with your tactics and and often I will say it is often people who don't do any activism at all don't do anything for animals who are the most vocal about their their hate um which I just like to point out because I think regardless of, of what anyone thinks about tactics, the most important thing, in my opinion, is just that you're doing something to help animals. I think the main thing I would say is I genuinely believe that most people who like view a protest and think, oh, that's too extreme, that's too radical, that's going to push people away or, or whatever, when they see a protest for animal rights. I want the people who think that, I want them to question if this is come, if that's coming from a place of speciesism, like when you see a protest for like disability rights or women's rights that's structured in the same way as our animal rights protests, do you have that same response? And I think most of the time people don't. I think a lot of this comes from people don't truly believe that animals deserve a social justice movement. And I think if we really see animals as deserving of a social justice movement, we will see them deserve, as deserving of these radical actions, of these protests, of getting arrested for. And so, yeah, I just would encourage people to question if, if speciesism is, is coming into to that. And also to just look at history, like look at the look at any social justice movement that's been successful in history. And, and you can see that it's 
um, 99% of the time been fought through radical protests like the ones that um, you know I'm using direct action everywhere and, and other groups are using to currently fight for change for animals. Well said. And very hopeful also, which I do have a question about hope, but I'll save it for the bonus content. So before we go, Shirsten, tell us what's next for you and how people can support your efforts of your sanctuary. In a couple of weeks, I'm going to be testifying at the Smithfield trial as an expert witness. Speaking of hope, I'm I'm very hopeful that I'll be able to talk about what's going on or what happened to the piglets in this case and that Wayne and Paul will be will not get jail time. That's what I'm very hopeful for. And as far as the sanctuary, it's an ongoing labor of love every single day. I work seven days a week at the sanctuary, um, both providing veterinary care and and also just you know, every type of care that the animals need, you know, from cleaning and feeding and just um, fundraising and dealing with staff issues. And we have um, six part-time staff members right now. And I would say our biggest area of need, honestly, is funding. So if anybody would like to donate, that would be great. What's your website? It's happyhen.org. Amazing. And Zoe, how can people find you online and support your efforts? Folks are welcome to follow me on social media if you want to. You can also follow Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary on social media. My personal Instagram is at Zoe underscore rooster. Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary is at uh, happy. It's basically every word of Happy Hen Animal Sanctuary with an underscore in between each one is our, is our Instagram handle. So, yeah, you can follow us on there. And, yeah, we you know appreciate all kinds of, of support. Um, and I appreciate all kinds of, of support, whether that be, you know, just sharing things online to help us get the word out, coming to protests. If you don't, if you live in uh, the Bay Area, I organize protests out here. We'd love for you to join us. Even if you don't live in the Bay Area, it's not me directly necessarily. It's not necessarily my specific campaign you'd be supporting, but you'd be supporting the same fight. Um, it would mean the world to me to see people just fight for animals wherever you are in the world. And it supports me by giving me giving me hope. So um, yeah, yeah wherever, totally. wherever you are in the world, get out there and fight for animals. Join a animal rights community near you. Build an animal rights community near you if there isn't one. I just think we all have the power to change the world. So why waste that power? <laughs> so true. Uh, so true. Okay. Um, so both of you, thank you so much for joining us today. I know that you have been so generous with your time, but I, I do want to keep you on for just a, a, a few more minutes. Uh, but I, I am so beyond inspired, like, we need a new word for inspired. So I'm I'm your newest, biggest fan, Zoe. And and Tristan, I think you're doing truly remarkable work. And I'm I'm just so grateful that both of you were able to share some true wisdom with our Hen House listeners today. So thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Greetings, listeners. Just a reminder that if you are a Flock member, you will get a link to the bonus segment in your email on the Tuesday after this podcast episode goes up, or you can always find it on the Flock Facebook group. 
And if you're not a member of the flock and you can afford it, you can join for $10 a month or $100 a year at ourhenhouse.org slash donate. Also, if you are a flock member, please join us for our flock first Friday Zoom calls, which are once a month on the first Friday of the month at 4 p.m. Eastern, where we have inspiring guests and great conversations about activism and animals and life in general. So if you're a member of the flock, check out that flock Facebook group for updates or write to us at info at ourhenhouse.org. And if you write to info at ourhenhouse.org, you can also set up a one-on-one conversation with me too, which I hope you do because I always have a lot of fun and I want you to also. And thanks so much for joining us in our mission to change the world for animals. Bye. Anxieties are rising. Our first story is from the National Pork Producers Council. So you can imagine. It's written by a pig farmer. So you can really imagine. Pig farmers to stand trial at Supreme Court. And this is, of course, referring to the upcoming argument on October 11th in National Pork Producers Council versus Ross, which will decide the constitutionality under the Dormant Commerce Clause of of the California and by implication as well, the Massachusetts uh, laws that prohibit the sale of pork, well, a lot of pork, not all pork, but sale of certain kinds of pork within their borders uh, if they're not in compliance with uh, the rules set forth in, in these propositions, which include basically not using the gestation crate for pregnant pigs. And they're upset. They're really upset. This guy's really, really upset. If the farmers lose, a state will be allowed to enforce a regulation on out-of-state production methods. That's actually not true. That is what they're always saying. I mean, I guess you could say it's true in a way. The state will be allowed to enforce a regulation on out-of-state production methods of goods that are sold in their state. According to them, states can't control what's sold within their their, uh, borders. And he says that historically, states could regulate only the character and quality of products made elsewhere, not the means of making them. And that is also, there is no clear law on that, though it is, it is a worry that that is the, the tack the court will take. But alongside the constitutional question, says Thomas, this guy's name is Thomas Titus, will be public judgment on the morality of American pig farming. Well, Not really, because there's so much that is immoral about American pig farming that is left untouched by this uh, question. But but, you know, I I guess there is the implication that that uh, California passed this law because there's something immoral. I mean, California seems to be allowed to pass whatever laws it wants. But uh, but no, it's not. Prop 12 bans in-state sale of pork from pigs born anywhere to sows housed in so-called gestation crates. <laughs> oh, this is good. Paren, protective pens. Now, gestation crate is an industry term. They apparently don't like it anymore. Oh, what's I don't even know. Like People don't even know what that means, so it's really not that bad a term for them. But now they want to call them protective pens that don't meet California space specifications, which almost none in the nation do. Well, there's a concession. Uh, you know, all of these companies that are saying, oh, yeah, they're getting on board. They're, 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 they're getting rid of their gestation crates. Apparently, they're completely lying. Well, we know that. It ignores that, he goes on, that other states, such as Ohio, have other rules, some in conflict with California's. No, it doesn't ignore that. It's based on the fact that other states have different rules, which are really, really bad for the pigs. 
Oh, among the pig farmers' accusers, the most surprisingly clueless have been academic economists who filed briefs saying that pig farmers could easily comply with Prop 12's requirements. Apparently, according to this guy, we shouldn't we shouldn't uh, trust academic economists. We should trust pig farmers. You know, he goes into this long, long description, and I'm just going to read it. I'm sorry, but there's a lot of reading I need to do this week because you need to hear the kind of stuff they say. Pig raising, and this is interesting in a way, in a horrifying way. Pig raising is broken into stages, with some farms combining the first two. Farrow to wean farms breed pigs and raise piglets until they are weaned, around 10 pounds. Feeder farms take weaned pigs and raise them until they are about 40 pounds. Finishing farms take those pigs and raise them until they reach market weight. Then the pigs go to the processor. What You know what processor means. So he's saying there's three different farms uh, involved. I, I never knew that. You know, I can't doubt him. I'm not a pig farmer. and But he does say that some farms combine the first two. But I didn't know they got shipped all around all these times. I don't know. It sounds simple, he says, but sometimes with each movement to a new stage and a new farm, growing pigs can be combined with pigs from other farms. Tracking which pig was born to which sow at which farm adds a level of complexity and legal risk that major processors will not accept. Rather than deal with higher costs and exposure, they will demand that all farms comply or charge consumers a big premium. Okay, I, I'm you know I'm cool with that. If you can't figure it out how to do business in your in your evil way and treat some pigs much worse than others, well then straighten up and fly right. Like follow the law. Follow the. Why should we say we're sorry for you just because you wanted to use the the worst possible conditions and make everybody else use the worst possible conditions too? Hey, pig farmer, if everybody, if all the pig farmers are following the same rules, which is what you're saying has to happen here, then you're playing on an even field. And if people want pork, they'll have to pay the price. It's not like you have competitors who will be able to do it differently. Anyway, I'll, I'll go back to this rather than going on and on. I can say with 100% certainty when that happens, i.e. demanding that all farms comply, our barns will have to be shuttered. Our form family cannot afford the compliance costs. Well, in the first place, who the hell cares? Like people have to go out of business if they can't do business, if they can't follow the law. And anyway, as I just said, if all the farms have to do it, then of course you'll be able to afford the compliance costs unless people don't want pork, unless it's really, really, really cheap. Uh, but it has nothing to do with your ability to compete because there'll be nobody com you're competing with that gets to follow different rules. And then he's going uh, on and on about what works on a small, almost artisan scale for highly affluent customers cannot feed a nation. A, we don't need pigs to feed a nation. And B, this is just such a concession that even a, a tiny, like, tiny improvement in the lives of these pigs, like getting rid of this brutal, brutal confinement for this one period of their lives, they can't pull it off. They can't do it. They can't do it which you know what that means? It means we need to stop pig farming. They're admitting that they cannot do it except with hideous, horrifying cruelty. They're admitting that. It's not possible economically. So get like we need to get rid of it. Seems obvious to me. Of course, he thinks that, that current conditions are great. He goes on and on about that, but I'll just read this one part. Pig farms are safer for pigs, he's talking about, than in the past. Because pigs can be extremely aggressive toward one another, during vulnerable, per vulnerable periods in their life cycles, sows are now moved to carefully designed individual stalls. 
This specialized housing is the excuse that anti-meat activists have used to attack us. Yeah, it sure is because, you know, we've seen pictures of it. And it's not during vulnerable periods in their life cycle. Well, it is during vulnerable periods in their life cycles, but they're in those vulnerable periods all the time. They're either gestating or they're nursing, farrowing, they call it. And and both times they're put in, they live in crates all their whole lives. Pigs can be extremely aggressive toward one another. It's a wonder there are any pigs left. Seems to me pigs get along just fine at sanctuaries and they're living, there's loads of them all together and they're snoozing away and having lovely lives. So screw you. Pig farmers, he goes on, cannot believe these attacks. They have dedicated their lives to providing the nation with a healthy source of protein and other nutrients, at a, like fat, at a price ordinary families can't afford and doing it ever more humanely. The public benefits have been enormous and the treatment of pigs is now by far the best in the world. I mean, just out and out lies. They've gotten rid of gestation crates in Europe, but apparently... It's just crazy to think they could do it here. Anyway, this next article actually has a lot of similar things to it. I'm probably going to have to read a lot of it, too. I'm sorry. But Vital Farms compares cage-free houses to office cubicles. This is apparently about some ad. I have not seen it. But Vital Farms is this company that claims that all of their their girls, which is what they call their hens, are uh, raised in, in on pasture. I, I had Asher Smith on the Animal Law podcast uh, a couple of months ago, and he was talking about their lawsuit against Vital Farms for saying this, which he contends is not true. So we'll see how that comes out. But in the meantime, Vital Farms is apparently going for it. They're sticking to their guns. They are comparing cage-free housing to sharing a cramped office cubicle in the first place. Like, I don't care how crowded your office cubicle is. It's not as bad as cage-free or housing, which, you know, is better than, but hardly better than uh, battery cages. It is extremely important, this article points out, to tell the whole story when talking about pasture-raised egg versus cage-free eggs. Yeah, it sure is. And the advertisement certainly does not do that. No, I agree with you. But this is from Watt uh, Poultry, so her point of view is a little different than mine. This is what she has to say. Cage-free hens are housed in large open barns that typically have multi-tiered aviaries for perching, nesting, feed, and water. Additionally, these houses are temperature controlled and have space for birds to dust, bathe, and forage. The great thing about cage-free hens versus pasture-raised hens is that they are safe from outdoor elements and the environment can be controlled. Because you know how dangerous the world is. Uh, thank God we have factory farmers to take care of animals. And it also allows um, for adhering to strict biosecurity measures. They just love to have biosecurity. Getting rid of disease vectors like rodents. Uh, maybe one day pasture-raised housing will become a legal matter in the U.S. like cage-free housing state mandates, and the above issues will become more urgent. But for now, there is still multiple egg options out there and a lot of concern that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I have a lot of concerns that I would like addressed, Meredith, but this is by one Meredith Johnson. I think I should have said that. And she is the managing editor of Egg Industry Insight. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Apparently, all these animals live in heaven. All right. Our final article is by Lisa Keefe. She's a columnist on Meeting Place. She writes the center of my plate column. And this particular column, which I found a little shocking myself, I really did. And I don't usually find the stuff she writes shocking. Uh, it's called The Chicago Way. And she's from Chicago. 
And she's uh, she describes what the Chicago way is, which basically she means like, you know, when government offices skirt the law and and they they kind of make whatever change they want, a fait accompli and then and then, you know, settle the lawsuits and whatever. So they get around regulations. And she's talking about how uh, she's seeing the Chicago way, as she calls it, tongue in cheek being adopted more often in unexpected places like Sioux Falls. And then she's talking about this, uh, this situation that's going on in Sioux Falls, that they're building a $500 million whole stone pork packing plant, i.e. slaughterhouse, and it ran into opposition. And she said, this surprised no one. I can imagine it didn't. Like People usually don't like huge $500 million slaughterhouses in their cities. The opposition has been formidable, she said. It forced the proposal to a vote of the people in the upcoming election. And apparently she considers it a bad thing that people should vote on whether they, well, I don't know whether she considers it a bad thing or, or not, because she just, she just continues to keep her tongue firmly in cheek because as if this is a joke, as if voting is a joke, as if, as if people allowing people to have, make decisions about the, the, the welfare of the community is a joke. She expected the conflict to follow one of the scripts they've seen in the past, which means the, the company will just find another place to do business. But Holstone took the Chicago way. Before the initiative could be put to a vote, they began building a small, quote, custom pork plant on the land inside the Sioux Falls city limits, where the company would like to build its large facility. And that is expected to open in a few weeks. And she said that the goal is to take advantage of a legal loophole that would allow the company to, quote, expand its operations at the same location. So what she's saying is that it was decided this should be put to a vote, and she thinks they found a legal way around that. This doesn't sound legal, but, you know, I don't know a lot about uh, Sioux Falls zoning law. Um, illegal, she says, nope. Well, I don't know how you know either. Unethical, let's just say it's efficient, effective, and pure Chicago. The Holstone deal is far from done, she said. Only a lawyer could count up the number of ways that this issue could be litigated if enough money were available to invest in the effort. Just listen to that. Just think about that. She's just said it wasn't illegal. And now she's saying maybe a lawsuit, there could be zillions of lawsuits if enough money were available. So are these, uh, is the city going to cough up that money? Are the citizens who don't want this plant in their midst going to cough up that money? Is that what needs to be done? No. Well, yeah, that is what needs to be done. Just so corrupt, and she just thinks it's a joke. Meanwhile, this Chicagoan, merely a spectator to a favorite fall sport, offers a tip of her hat to the ploy. Game recognizes game. Well, screw you, honey. Screw you. And that's it for this week's Rising Anxieties. for this week's show. As always, if you enjoy the podcast and you're able, we would be thrilled to have you join the flock by going to ourhenhouse.org slash donate and signing up for $10 a month or $100 a year. Or you're always welcome to make any size donation you're comfortable with. You can also support us by leaving a fabulous review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Our Hen House. 
You could also leave us a review on Facebook. And if you shop on Amazon, you can use Amazon Smile using Our Hen House as your favorite charity. And of course, tell your friends about us. If you're one of our listeners who already supports us, thank you so much. And thank you to my co-host, Marianne Sullivan, to Vicki Beachler for her work in producing this podcast, to composer Michael Heron for the music, Thanks to Eric Montgomery of The Podcast Haven for his work editing this podcast, to our production assistant, Jocelyn Martinez, and to Veronica Kalinska, who designed our amazing logos and other graphics. We'll be back next week with a brand new show, so don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Jasmine Singer. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next week.